Hello everyone, I'm back. Did you miss me? I hope so. Today we're going to be continuing on with the previous topic. The list previously ended at item 12. Today we're going to be covering the 13 to 20 mark, and hopefully you learn something from this. After all, the whole point of this is educational. I should note, as a pre-show thing, that I have been suggested ways in which I can improve this, so I'm going to try and implement those improvements, and hopefully the audio which is transmitting to you now is a little more understandable and sounds like I'm no longer drowning underwater. All right, let's get started. Alrighty then. Okay, so item number 13. So we last one we did from 1 to 12 on the list, and the prior list was 1 to 6, a basic elements of forum sliding and things that come along with that, and power on forums. 1 to 12 on the list were different types of ways in which you can subvert a political base uh, forum of peoples, but it can also apply towards just general political basis where there isn't necessarily a forum, but rather a gathering, a group. So for item 13, we're going to begin with insult your opponent, and most of the time belittle them. It was made of an advantageous tactic, a strategy was made to be back in the day of the USSR. And before that, for people like Joseph Stalin to belittle the enemy and compare them to children. And it happens in all sorts of media. It happens all over the world, and it happens since the dawn of time almost. Children are seen as inferior to adults, seen in the sense that they are not as knowledgeable, don't have as much wisdom as adults. This is fair to say. Equating them to be children as they stand to be adults is insulting because it grows incompetence in their image. It also states that what they are saying is what a child would say. It is to basically bring them down a notch. Belittling them to make them seem like children is probably the most potent version of doing this. You can say that someone is a virgin. You can say that somebody is a commie. You can say that somebody is a terrorist. You can say that someone is below you or a threat, an insult in any way, but mostly to belittle them is to work the best when it comes to trying to show your dominance over them, especially publicly. And bringing them down to the level of being a child is, well, that has the most gravity to a lot of people. If you can make them out to be an incessant child and you insult them, and then they react with a high emotivity, they get outraged, they start throwing things around or throwing things at you or throwing verbs at you, throwing what they're going to do at you, what they're going to do to you out in the public sphere. Well, once that's happened, it's kind of signed their death warrant. Now, I would suggest that you don't insult them too much because there is such a thing as the raging bull. If you go ahead and you try to dig in the nerves too deep, you can put your life at risk. Be wary of that. Number 14, ignore every good answer your opponent gives. Play dumb and say that every answer is a bad answer, or you don't know what they're talking about. So it's easy, just play dumb. You have to ignore every answer your opponent gives you. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to act completely obtuse and oblivious, like you're not even listening to what they're saying. The reason you do this is because they can't make a good point, and they will get flustered and emotional once again, if you stop them from being able to make the point. If you're being obtuse, if you're being stubborn to accept their point, then if you just keep playing as if you are accepting their argument, but you aren't accepting their point, if you're continuing the conversation, you haven't just left it or put the hand up, they can get very frustrated and angry, and then it ends up with them looking like a fool when they get angry at you. And then you can claim as if they are acting petulant, like a child. If you ignore every good answer they give, then every time that you repeat the answers that you have given against them, it'll be more so the ones that people on, on your side will respect. And so, transmitting that, 
your side starts to get the idea of how this works. And because you're an authority, you may have it so that other people on your side simply follow you. And by simply following you, they choose to not give in to the enemy's ability to speak and communicate. And by doing that, they take every good answer the opponent has been given and they throw it out into the trash because you're ignoring it. Why would they listen to it? We mustn't listen to those people. Remember how we covered that? They are the enemy. We mustn't listen to them. So you must ignore every good answer they give. And playing dumb is a big part of that, but mostly you want to try and construe every answer as a bad answer. Playing dumb is really a big fallback decision. If you play dumb, you look dumb. It's simple. Then again, there is also, you don't know what they're talking about. There's playing dumb, as in, oh, I don't understand, or there's, I don't know what they're talking about. Well, that one puts the burden of proof on them. And if they can't prove it well enough, then the accusations start coming in. This person is trying to frame you. But if not that, you don't know what they're talking about. How can you be blamed? You didn't know what they're talking about. So I guess now we have to forgive you for your previous aggression, right? That's what they're going to say about you, aren't they? They're going to have to forgive you for what you've done. And that means that you get off scot-free. There you go. You live to fight another day. Number 15, claim your opponent's facts and evidence are made up or an incomplete picture and obscure the actual presented evidence under a mountain of scrutiny. This one is difficult to look at without examining the idea of uh, critical culture and being critical of everything. And the, we've discussed prior the idea of things being debunked, debunked, right, as a popular thing. So what you want to do is you want to take the facts that your opponent have on their side that support their narrative, that support what they're saying, and the evidence that they bring towards things in the court of opinion, public opinion and the court of law. And you want to accuse them of making them up. And you want to go to whatever length you can to accuse them of being made up. In fact, you can actually make it look like it was made up if you poison the conversation by saying that the method by which it was obtained was obtained illegitimately or from illegitimate sources. Or perhaps there was a collusion, a conspiracy involved that you can even chalk up. If you're desperate, you can have agents chalk up a conspiracy for you by having people to arrest or having people to be there at the right time after an investigation is put out. Or you can give it an incomplete picture, right? You can make it into an incomplete picture, I mean. So a lot of things are incomplete pictures. It's a matter of how complete you want the picture to be. If you're talking about the complete picture of what am I recording this on? I'm recording this on a microphone, right? And it's outputting to the computer. And then that audio is being put onto an audio editing software that I will edit it later. But say I didn't mention the audio editing software, then am I giving an incomplete picture of how this recording's going? In some way, yes. But it is the truth that I'm talking into the microphone and it's being output to the computer, right? So if I just give them the accuracy that they're giving an incomplete picture and I broaden out what the picture was supposed to be required to be and I convince people which they may already be convinced of what the incomplete picture regards the complete picture in then people will think of them as being holding back things people will think of them as being reluctant to tell the full truth people will think of them as being incompetent to fulfill the entirety of something they only prefer to think the other one if they already have suspicion but otherwise they will think of them as being incompetent to fill out the picture so you also want to obscure the actual presented evidence under a mountain of scrutiny sometimes you can't get rid of the evidence sometimes the evidence is just there. So you want to just obscure it under a enormous mountain of scrutiny. What does that mean? That doesn't mean necessarily that you start erasing it and saying that never happened. That's propaganda. No. What you want to do is that you want to do the thing where you get your experts. You ha I've talked about this before. You get people on your side and then you take the presented evidence and then you throw as many criticisms as you can, like, like a hail of gunfire, poking little tiny holes through the entirety of the evidence and where it came from and what it's being used for. You want to make sure that you make up a load of bullshit that would scrutinize something. It doesn't matter if it's opinionated. You can always fall back on the idea of being obscure, or obtuse, and saying, oh, I didn't know that. I thought I thought this was a fact. Or you can always fall back on the idea of, oh, well, it's all, it's all to do with opinion, isn't it? It's just someone's opinion, wasn't it? Right. So 
you can fall back on those things. If someone demands something solid of you after you've had all this scrutiny, like an alternative, then, well, you can just say, uh, well, it's their job to provide an alternative. It's their job to provide a intact product. It's their job to provide integrity. And they haven't provided that. So I guess they've uh, betrayed us all, haven't they? Something along those lines. What I should remind you is that if you're going to put it under a mountain of scrutiny, make sure the scrutiny isn't stupid. Make sure that it has an air of sophistication about it. Uh, use some sophisticated big words in scrutinizing things. And demand a completely arbitrary standard of the actual presented evidence. Keep demanding further and further until the actual presented evidence is not good enough, all right? It's like looking at video footage in court and then someone saying that the video footage didn't capture the exact hand motions of someone taking something off the shelf and there was no exact footage of them putting it in their pocket, but there was them on the, near the shelf and then the product disappears and they walk away. Demand that. That's not reasonable, but... That would mean that there was nothing presented on the video of them actually taking it and putting it into their pocket. There's footage of them taking it, but not actually taking it into their pocket. So this sort of scrutiny seems ridiculous, but if you keep piling it on, it becomes a quantitative thing. And the argument around it is either abandoned or people start to see your side because how could it be they didn't account for X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, and whatever else? Maybe they're just incompetent. And if that all fails, a mountain of scrutiny will destroy standards because after a while, if things don't conform to the general standard that's been put forward, especially by the the, uh, the academics or the authority on knowledge, right? If things don't conform to that, then what you get is the idea that there is no standard, that there is no judgment to be had, and everything is just up to the subject. That can be very powerful. Number 16, always claim your opponent is biased and make up allegiances to make them appear biased. So bias is hard to overcome. Why? Because you do have biases. Everybody has them. It doesn't necessarily mean it's been ejected into the work, but it's a common accusation that you are suddenly biased when they can find something you might have a bias on, and they will find it. They will look for it. Being biased is one of the worst accusations to have in post-enlightenment. Being biased is one of the accusations that will kill any sense of credibility or reputation you have, especially in things like the world of science. You have to always claim your opponent is biased and you have to establish it that they are biased in some way, shape or form. And if you can't, then you make up allegiances. You say they were with X, Y and Z persons. They said they have interest in this organization or this investment or whatever this is and whatever that is. You have to try and make it out that they are biased and everybody has their biases. So maybe you can try and make it out at some point. If you can't make it out, what you can do is that you can fake a bias by accusing them of being biased against something. Say that uh, someone is biased against women because they don't want to watch a film which is being redone entirely with a female cast. Not necessarily, they just don't like that sort of film. But that would mean that they're biased, right? See, there's where the trouble starts. Number 17. Claim you are an expert, have personal knowledge, or personal experience. So as long as you claim you're an expert, as we said before, valid experts, and you have personal knowledge and personal experience that you can kind of draw from that is at least on the baseline level, then you can keep that facade up. This is difficult, because if there's anybody who isn't actually an expert, isn't actually an expert, but it's also like a person who's an autodidact who has understood these things to come across. Even they can actually debunk you. You don't actually need an expert there to debunk you. You can have someone who is self-taught or you can have someone who is on the internet and is able to look it up lickety-split and find the answer, which is not what you've said. What you want to know is how knowledgeable is the group that I'm trying to subvert? You want to always be concerned with that part, okay? If you know that it's just a group of random people, rather random in terms of their expertise. You can walk in there and you can act like the guy and catch me if you can. You can be a chameleon. Number 18, 
Make an important issue seem like it doesn't matter. That one is hard. To make something important seem like it doesn't matter, there's a variety of ways to do it from my understanding, but the most common way that I hear it being done, this is me personally, is to memory hole it. So what do I mean by memory hole? Well, in today's world, there is always something or other that is coming up that is a big, huge event. For example, the fire of Notre Dame. That was a huge event. That was very particularly important. But then there are more events that come after that. For example, like COVID. So what's more important to be talked about? The fire of Notre Dame as a crisis in the world or COVID? They're completely unrelated things and you can talk about them separately. But the Australian bushfires stopped being cared about as much and the victims of them when COVID came around. So they're both important issues. All of them are important issues. But the zeitgeist changes conversation. People talk and consider the issue of their time beyond when the issue has actually been solved. Sometimes the issue just ends up in a dustbin somewhere and we have to pick up the pieces of what we left behind because we've just ignored it. And sometimes it's because someone has made it so that what the current topical issue is that we're supposed to all be talking about, what the big hubbub is, so to speak, is what has been made to seem like it matters. Well, why does it matter? Why does that matter more than these other things? And why can't we solve these other things first before we get to these problems? Well, it has to be done now. It has to be done immediately. It has to be done as soon as possible. That's it. You need to create the urgency that the new matter is more important than the old matter. You need to create that urgency. Because if you don't, then people will keep looking back. Everything needs to be an explosion on their TV screens. It has to be the big new deal, the big new thing that everyone's talking about. Because if it's a continuous rolling train of big new deals, then we never actually solve the problem. It just gets buried. Or it gets shifted away into a file cabinet in a big archive that all the people who are particularly interested are able to look into and solve for themselves and come to a conclusion that they themselves preferred, which would be, you guessed it, organizations that have an interest in it, have an interest in what happened, who did it, have an interest in how you're going to perceive it, and if whether or not you'll shut up and stop asking questions. Number 19, make an important issue seem outdated or old. I've practically covered this with the prior thing. So to make it seem outdated or old, you need to act as if it's outdated or old. That's obvious. Don't need to say that. But do I? How do I act that something's outdated or old when it's such a pressing issue that could have been covered today? Aren't there atrocities in the past, like the Holocaust, that if we say that's an outdated issue, then we will get torn up to pieces? Because why wouldn't we? So dismissing it as outdated or old doesn't get rid of the issue, right? Some of the things of these permeate the culture today. Not talking about the issues themselves, but rather what the legacy is of the issues of the old time. So what you need to do in order to manipulate is to try and first act like it doesn't matter, turf it from the explosion on the TV screens, right? And then when people bring it up, you act as if that happened years ago or that happened ages ago or that happened. Uh, that's that's old news. Practically, you have to act as if you have to make it a big, a big emotional display about you're still going on about that. What's wrong with you? There are bigger problems we got right now. Or you have to talk about how this issue happened years and years ago and that if you're still worried about it, if you're still thinking about it, that you shouldn't be relevant, that you are stuck in the past, right? But the problem is, is that sometimes these things have been resolved and the people who are right to say that it is outdated or old are then accused like the people who say that it's outdated or old who are trying to turf it below. Maybe it is an outdated or old issue. Maybe it truly should have been left behind because it's not an issue that is worthwhile. And maybe 
they may be right. But that leads into the other side of this. If it seems outdated, it's not worth talking about, right? So if you act like the issue is outdated or old, then that can mean that you're past that now. And that can mean that it's a positive thing. Not necessarily that bringing it up is to say that it's a negative. You can say, well, we're past that now. We've progressed past that. And that can be used in a positive light. Basically, what I mean is it's the difference between using it in a negative light by accusing someone of talking about an archaic thing, problem, that shouldn't be relevant, or in a positive light by saying, yes, we have improved, we have progressed, we have made it past that issue. Number 20, and this will be my final entry into here. When caught in a lie, create a false sense of fortification by creating fake identities to aid a group consensus illusion. Now, this one is more relevant in a context of speaking about forums. Why is that? So, if you're caught in a lie, they've seen through your guise, your disguises, just drop to the floor. When you create a false sense of fortification by creating fake identities, you get people around you to agree and you have the peer pressure effect. If you don't agree with them, then what's wrong with you? Hmm? What's wrong with you and why do you continue to act this way? Why aren't you going with the pack? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you disagreeing with everybody? That's a really good question to ask, isn't it, Joe? Yes, I think it is, Mick. What about you, Johnny? Yeah, I think it is, Tim. Yeah. I think it is. I think you should all stop asking questions. And if you have the fake identities, you also have the presence of power in groups. Because more fake identities give the implication that if there is no longer going to be talking, then there will be violence. Because the pack, the group, will come up to you. And if you're not going to talk with them, then they're going to get violent. But that's more of like a real life thing. But there is such a thing as being threatening to use violence on the internet. If there's a group of them, then they can threaten you. With the actions such as doxing, they can threaten you with exposure, and they can continue to lay on you and bully you or harass you through what you have. But in reality, they're all the same person or the same few people. They're all fake identities. Or maybe there are fake identities of individual different people. So that's, it is to hide them from any sort of antagonism. Either way this goes, any way this goes, it aids a group in creating a consensus illusion. It aids a person in creating a group census collusion to make an illusion. Why? Eventually, they're going to go after these people and they're going to ask them, hey, I saw you interacting with other people, but there's a dead end. So it appears like collusion together to lie, to make up a face, but they're all dead ends. They're all fake identities. So it's an illusion and it's one that's easy enough to pull off in the age of fake profiles. And that's going to be it for these list items. I do have some other things to discuss with you. I hope that I'm a bit more concise with these things, but if you truly do have an intrigue in these sorts of things, these sorts of methods of manipulation and of change within groups, then I suggest that you read the works of Noam Chomsky, Solinsky, and you look into the history of politics, of the persuasion used by people like Lenin and Hitler. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why it is that you can't make the OK sign anymore? Well, it's because racists and white supremacists use it, right? So what it used to be was that it's the finger, the index finger touching the thumb and the other fingers act as sort of a K, so that's okay. But what that is, is that it's actually the index finger and the thumb touch together and the other fingers fan out to the top. So that makes a, a W and a P down the wrists, that's white power. Okay, but that doesn't make any sense. Because it's the exact same sign, and it means it can be used to make the exact same things. O and K, and W and P. What's being said here? What am I talking about? Sign hijacking. There's another word for it, but I'm going to call it that. Hijacking signs and symbols. So, when you hijack signs and symbols, you take the normal cultural occurrence of them, which has been normalized in some fashion. That's the thing. It's been normalized. 
text in some fashion to meet some representation, but you then re-represent it in a certain way. So what happened was, is the OK sign got practically memed. You know what a meme is, right? Practically memed into being white power. Does it actually mean white power? It's always meant okay, okay. It just, all that happened was that people drew some diagrams that put extra lines on to make it a W and a P instead of an O and a K. And then white supremacists started spreading it around. And then, in no time at all, the enemy had to then recognize that. And then, in no time at all, you can't use it anymore. I'm not sure you remember that. Maybe it's in the back of your mind somewhere as an occurrence. People were getting pulled up for that sort of behavior using that white power symbol. But the people who did that weren't all white supremacists. In fact, they, most of them were doing it because they're just right of center. But they understood how to hijack these sorts of things and make it into their own. When you see the swastika for the Nazis, you think, well, the Nazis, obviously, right? Do you know that the swastika actually has its place in inspiration from Hindu culture? But not just Hindu, Buddhism and Jainism. You can look this up if you'd like. Some people don't realize this. But why don't they realize that? Because whenever we think of the swastika, we think of the Nazis. And that's because the symbol has been reappropriated to represent them. It became popular during World War II and the 1930s as the symbol of Nazi Germany. Then, after, it was synonymous, practically, with Nazi Germany. Because the propaganda for the side against Nazi Germany used it so much and continues to this day to use it to represent evil in some fashion. It is something that is at the very base of discussions about evil. The swastika, that symbol, that represents Nazi Germany but it was wheeled around. It wasn't the same position as the swastika used in those religions. However, it was, in a way, hijacked to be used to represent that. Now, that means in a cultural mimetic setting, that means that people only refer to it and its existence the majority of the time, at least in Western world, as something from Nazi Germany. And when they look at it, they will think, that's Nazi Germany. They won't think Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, they won't think any of that. So, that also means that all those cultures have been moved aside. And in a multicultural age, that's rather interesting, hasn't it? Become so interesting, hasn't it become so interesting that you can hijack these things so easily and they're so potently able to change your perception and how you intuitively process things, how you look at things and can understand, hmm, that is that and that is that without having to analyze it thoroughly and without having to discover it anew. You can just know that means that, right? Well, we wouldn't worry about the details. We only worry about changing things to befit a common narrative. We only worry about changing things to be perceptibly how it is most common in society so that it normalizes and becomes part of that common narrative. That is the first thing you will say it represents, and you will say that's the only thing it represents until you're confronted with this other knowledge that you probably didn't even know. And I'm sorry if that is insulting your intellect, but the chances are, more than likely, if you're in the West and you're listening to this, you didn't know that it represents other things. Why? Because politics is almost everywhere nowadays, and the idea of a Nazi is also everywhere, pretty much, in the West. And at the same time, I doubt that you have decided to completely avoid the sphere of anger, an aggression that goes against those said Nazis. Because how could you? What I mean to say with this is that some of these symbols, these signs, are hijacked by the enemy to make you think certain things about them. And the enemy is whoever the enemy is to you, I suppose. But what I will say 
is that you must look into the history of these things. Look into the history of signs and symbols. Calling cards have a history to them, and they may have been used in the past to represent different things. Be very careful what you say when you see something like a calling card. Do not get it wrong, because you may just construe it with something completely out of the reality of why it is there and why it's being used, and start calling a bunch of Hindu people Nazis, and vice versa. Hope you understand. Do you remember when Steven Crowder and Carlos Maza had a, I wouldn't call it an altercation, but they had a problem with each other. And Carlos Maza and Steven Crowder became the subject of an analysis into the adpocalypse that followed on YouTube. YouTube caved into Carlos Maza's demands, and following this, there was another adpocalypse, basically advertising becoming more difficult for the broad spectrum of YouTube creators because of the fallout of this decision. There was a person on Twitter, and I think their handle was Woko Harambe, and they did an analysis of how this played out. I'm not going to go into the repercussions of the apocalypse. I'm going to go into how Carlos Maza got YouTube to do their work for them, and how the spectrum of allies shifts. So, this is worded from Woko Harambe. I don't take credit for this analysis, but I'll speak it to you, because apparently this got removed. The tactics that Carlos Maza used, they can be counted. What was used here is that it was organized. Like all of these tactics used by these sorts of people like Carlos Maza, which may seem spontaneous, may seem individual, are more often not organized. If you want to look at a lot of these organized tactics used by what we're going to call the left, then you can go to the website known as www.beautifultrouble, it's one connected, beautifultrouble, no spaces, .org. That's www.beautifultrouble.org. And these are the tactics that are used in methods of liberal protest. So Carlos Maza was able to use tactics like those captured in here. And if I just pull this up here, sorry for all the clicking if you can hear that. I'm going to be working through what happened. This is important because this plays to the idea of companies having power over their own items of ownership versus the people who are able to use methods of protest to rid them of that power momentarily and to take over for them. Or rather, the power is given to these people of, who are protesting for whatever means the company would like to do that. So what was done first is there was power mapping. Direct attacks would fail because this was YouTube hosting crowd, right? So power mapping determines who holds power and influence over the person you want to attack. In this case, Carlos couldn't get Steven Crowder to shut up. He targeted the company with power over Crowder, which is YouTube, the platform that Crowder makes his videos on. So then what comes afterwards was to choose target wisely. He may have not had enough power to push his primary target, which is Crowder, but his actions may help him identify a secondary target that can be pressured to leverage their influence on the primary target, which, as we know, would be YouTube. This YouTube, even though it's a big company, is practically the secondary target. So then what happens is there is a sophisticated system of uh, figuring out who holds power over and influence over who, and then the target is picked based on who they can leverage the most against targets they can't hit directly. So they use allies right? Allies to do things for them that they can't do themselves. So once identified target, you shift the spectrum of allies. I feel like I'm explaining this rather slow, but I'm just trying to go through it the best I can. The left knows they can move everyone to the far left in one go. And why is that? Well, from my understanding, that is because the Overton window is so far left in society. This isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. This is observing that the political worldview of society as a whole is sort of swung in a pendulum to the left, 
much further than it has to the right. And so people who, who might be, per se, an extreme leftist are more sufferable by the population than people who would be an extreme rightist. And people who are an extreme leftist are less likely to be considered to be uh, terrorists or people who are, have to be looked to be taken care of than people who are extreme rightists. And this also applies to things like Islamic fundamentalists, who we have the idea of as being the idea of a terrorist after things like 9-11 in our heads, because Islamic fundamentalists are fundamentally as far right as you can go, right? They're fundamentalists. It's complete Islam or nothing. That's not me saying I'm against Islam. That's just me looking into it how it is. So this Overton window permits them to move people further left, further away, easier. So they can pretty much move everyone to the far left in one go, because they can also, well, the thing is that the leftists, as we can call them, not trying to dehumanize anybody, are really good at political plays because they have been really well versed in it. The old way the right would do otherwise is too obvious, or they would just use force and violence. The left knows how to work themselves around that sort of solution a bit better. I would say a bit better. I'd say a lot better, honestly, from what I know. So there are five groups of people to be moved in notches. Active allies who will fight with you, passive allies who agree but don't act, neutrals, passive opposition who disagree but don't act, and active opposition who actively fight you. The goal is to shift each group over a notch, and that shifts the entire spectrum over a notch. The goal is basically win by shifting the support from out from under them, pulling the rug from under them, pulling out the supports. It's like a, Think of it like a Jenga tower. Right? Determine the social blocks at play given an issue, and work to shift them closer to your position. Keep moving people over in notches, and you get what you want. It's your allies, your comrades, together, right? This is the power of collectivism in shifting the public eye and shifting the allies who represent or believe in certain things in the public. This is the power of collectivism at work. Individualism, politically speaking for manipulation, or politically speaking for power moves in general, is not very powerful, I'm sorry to say. So only once the power is mapped, the target is chosen wisely, and they know where everyone is on the spectrum of allies. They can move on planning the action. They pre-plan this. They write these things up. This is what these people do. They write these things up because they know their stuff. They, they're very well versed in who is where and what they want to do, right? So then, afterwards, only once the power is mapped, the target is chosen wisely, and they know where everyone on the spectrum of allies can move on to for planning the action. Each action, such as boycotting or protest, has as its goal to put the target in a decision dilemma. And in that, you want to force your target into a situation where they have to respond but have no good options. The idea is that there's no way of the situation that ends well for them. Either they capitulate completely or they get screwed, so to speak. So, this also happened during Pride Week, which means that Carlos Maza, who from my recollection was gay, and in here is mentioned as being at advantage. Maybe an advantage because Stephen Crowder isn't a fan of gays, but I'm not too sure about that myself. But anyway, it says here that during Pride Week, Carlos Maza attacking put YouTube in a decision dilemma. So whatever YouTube did, it wouldn't be enough for Carlos, and he would just accuse YouTube of homophobia during the Pride Week. The only way to avoid that PR damage is deplatforming Stephen Crowder, right? So you got to do what they want. It's basically coercion of a kind you could call it. YouTube looks like it is trying to strike a middle balance between the far left and Steven Crowder, so that they can look like they're doing something without banning people. This has had the following and totally predictable result has happened. So this dilemma, as you would know, there's a large number of tactics to choose from to confront a dilemma of any political way or size or whatever option you want to choose. But this type of dilemma was done really well. All of it was planned, picked very carefully, the timing was careful, optics were managed, and target is clear. Anyone 
who thought it was just a guy whining does not understand. But that's the thing, is that people have the idea that it was just a guy whining. A lot of the times these power plays are pulled, people have this public perception about it that it's just a guy whining. And that's part of the problem. People don't look too far into it. They let it pass and by. What if that little shape in the river is a crocodile, not a rock? What if it only went by you because it wasn't hungry at that moment? You've got to be more perceptive about these things, especially today. It's imperative to do so. So these people look kind of powerful, contrary to my crocodile image I've drawn in your head. They look rather powerful, but they're not. Capitulation empowers them, giving them more leverage. If YouTube had just said, because YouTube is the owner of the platform, Carlos will not determine the content of our platform, that would have ended it with zero consequences, right? It's YouTube. What is Carlos Maza going to do after they have been completely shredded of their power to do what it is they've tried to do here? What are, what are they going to do? What would they do? Probably nothing. Just whine and cry, right? So what real power does he have beyond this? Very little to none. I'm not saying he's a bad creator. I'm just saying that beyond this, in this situation, he didn't have much at all. And if it was just said that Carlos won't determine the rules or content of YouTube and left it at that, Carlos actually looks weak and he's been defeated in public after his gambit to not be defeated. And this looks like he can be defeated again after this then, and he'd be made fun of. YouTube would likely gain fans if they handled it like that. Carlos would be playing guilt by association. All YouTube had to say was they're a platform, watch what you want, you won't be pushed around by activists of any stripe. And if they hold that line, they win. But YouTube and a bunch of other companies too don't like to play that. They like to cater. And they do get criticisms for catering these companies. Very recently, people have started to catch on to the idea that companies are just plastering rainbows onto their logos during Pride Week, especially for appeal towards the people who need it. Do they really need it? I wouldn't say so. Activists will try to boycott YouTube's advertisers. All YouTube has to do is say if Coke and Visa pull their advertising, they're banned from YouTube and they wouldn't do it anymore. Isn't that so? Wouldn't that be so? We all know who wins there. YouTube gets a massive amount of eyeballs. That's like saying that Coke and Visa are going to threaten Google. What's going to happen to them? <laughs> Who's going to win that? I think you can figure it out. And since Visa, they aren't going to pick a fight with the largest advertiser, as I said, and make themselves irrelevant, that means YouTube didn't really have to worry about boycott threats if they did that. Boycotting itself can be completely curbed if you have the power of monopolization like YouTube has. Where are they going to go otherwise? DLive? They're going to go to, what is it? Bitshoot? What? It's YouTube. You have to understand how power works and how you see the way out. And let me just recap that for you. Carlos Maza didn't like Steven Crowder being on the platform. Steven Crowder was staying on the platform because YouTube is a platform for watching videos and YouTube's policy didn't disallow Steven Crowder from being there, didn't disallow YouTube from allowing advertisements for Steven Crowder that's allowing him to make money. Carlos Maza didn't have any real power to remove Steven Crowder. Stephen Crowder committed no crimes, nothing to report. Carlos Maza decides that he's going to appeal to shifting the spectrum of allies. He's going to start going ahead and move people towards him. He's going to try and during Pride Week pressure YouTube as, from what I understand in this passage here, a gay individual to try and do what he says. Otherwise, he will say that they are being discriminatory because Stephen Crowder is conservative and thus against homosexuality. From my understanding, I don't actually know his thoughts on it now. But the gist is that Carlos Maza was able to use this idea that Steven Crowder is not to be had on the platform, and that YouTube will suffer if they deny Carlos Maza, and that YouTube will suffer if they deny this crowd of people who are politically correct, to stop this huge platform from doing the thing that they are totally allowed to do, and trying to build and build and build a sense that capitulation is at front for YouTube, and the only solution YouTube has, by further and further 
painting YouTube as being discriminatory. You can see this effect almost anywhere you go. Even the smallest accusation that you're being discriminatory is like what they used to do to politicians in the old day when they called them pedophiles or homosexuals. Even the smallest accusation that's done can start a witch hunt. Even the smallest accusation that some greater company is being discriminatory can force them to act out and start doing things that you want them to do. And if you're a person who's part of that intersectional group, then that's even better because then you get exposure. Think about the power that is held there and think about how potent that actually is when it comes to a genuine cause. Can a person who is part of that intersectional group not do anything they like? And why is it they can do almost anything they like and simply use their intersectional group? You simply use their oppressed minority, so to speak, to justify it. I'm not saying they are here, but I'm asking why is it that can take a platform like YouTube, a power like YouTube, a monopoly, or almost a monopoly, like a YouTube, and run it down and make YouTube do what they want? Is it the company? Are the people in the company responsible for it too? Did they agree with it? Because they agree, in fact. And they have to hold themselves to the policy that was up there. They have to hold themselves to the policy by letting Stephen Crowder get advertisements and letting Stephen Crowder make content. And only now have they had the convenience for this to happen. Or could it be that they didn't want Carlos Maza's pressure? Because they knew that Carlos Maza belonged to a network like Vox. They knew that Carlos Maza had supporters. They knew that people would start talking and people would start denying YouTube of important business. Maybe YouTube doesn't care. Maybe YouTube is just a corporation and YouTube isn't politically partial to things. Start asking these questions and start finding out what's really going on. I'm not saying any of this is really the absolute truth. What I'm really asking you to do, genuinely, is find out what is true. That'll about do it for now. Thank you for listening again, and I hope that my next time I can be a bit more informative on things. Next time, ideally, we're going to be going through the same sort of format. I'm going to be introducing to you more items from the 64 item list. Then I'm going to be talking about some real life examples of some political sphere, some political group manipulations and some political group actions to ascertain power where they didn't have it. Hopefully you don't try these things at home. I should mention that I don't encourage you to actually do these things. I speak in the sense of what you should do in order to do these things if you were going to do them. Kind of like how someone would tell you how you were going to modify your AR-15 to be fully automatic, right? It's not telling you to do it, it's telling you how you would do it if you had to do it. The same way that people tell you how you would make a smoke bomb, not telling you to make a smoke bomb. See, it's it's very different. It's very different. If I tell you that I want you to go make a, a homemade nuclear weapon or go make anthrax in Minecraft, then that's very, that's very different than me saying that I want you to do the aforementioned, but without the Minecraft part. Yeah. That, that just completely throws away the chance that your personal federal agent will knock on your door and finally get to meet the person they've been longing to see their whole entire career, right? That will work out so well for you. If I would ever be sponsored by anybody, I would like to be sponsored by a VPN. Not because I think they're particularly useful all the time, although they can be, but because I think if I were to have any people who would be listening to this, they would want a VPN because they would want their internet traffic to be private and protected. Remember, if a site is banned, a site is banned. Let's not push the boundaries, everybody.
let's all be good citizens and let's take these things how they should be. Joke or not a joke, pug or Nazi pug, let's just take these things how they should be taken. How should they be taken? You figure it out, monkey brain. You'll be fine. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope to not hear from you, but for you to hear me in the future. And I hope my content is entertaining. Thank you and goodbye.